The kids, Miss Farkas is over there. She's ready to take you out to children's worship. You can head on out. It's a lot quieter this week than it was last week when y'all were leaving, so... Typically, this is a low-energy Sunday for us as a church, you know, which is not all bad because most Sundays here are so high-energy that it makes me for a low-energy Sunday afternoon. And so, um, um, but it is, uh, we're right in the middle of the Christmas season. I know for many of you that's confusing because you thought Christmas was over. That's because you're celebrating a commercial holiday. Uh, not a spiritual holiday. Welcome to the spiritual holiday of, uh, of Christmas. We're right in the thick of it. So um, as we work our way through uh, this coming year, as we uh, participate in the uh, uh, working our way through the church calendar, one of the things that we want you to see more and more is how the life of Christ and then the life of the early church has impact on us uh, and how we live and work Today And so we're going to look today at this passage from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, uh, to help us with that. This is a unique passage. It's one of the few passages in the Bible about the childhood of Jesus, the boyhood of Jesus. And so uh, we should pay some particular attention to it this morning. So uh, Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. The text is in the bulletin, also up in the screens behind me. This is the word of God. And we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So, um, Megan, go ahead and put my notes up there. So this, as I mentioned before, this is a, a very rare piece of scripture. It's some insight into the, the, the boyhood of, of Jesus Christ. And this, you know, the, the way Luke kind of organizes his gospel is he, he starts here, the, you know, one of the very first activities of Jesus after he is, uh, circumcised and dedicated, presented in the temple, and his mom and dad make the offerings there, and they run into Anna and Simeon there. Then we, we don't really see much about him until now at age 12. There he is again at the Passover in the temple. And then the book closes with the Passover where Jesus will be crucified. So between these two Passovers is largely the, the life and, and work of Jesus Christ that we're going to be talking about. And so 
Uh, this is a unique thing. Now, one of the things that you have to see about this, we read this story and we think a 12-year-old sitting among the religious leaders of the day, having a conversation with them would be like, that would be crazy, right? But listen, compared to the stories that are circulating in the first century about the boy Jesus, this is really lame and boring. Okay? For instance, there's a story going around. Uh, that one day Jesus was playing in the creek out behind his house. Glad to know that Jesus did that. You know, I did that as a boy. Uh, but the water was muddy and he wanted something to drink. So he backed the creek up, says to the water, clear up. It clears up and he gets a drink. Now, Annas, the uh, high priest, his son is there in the village too, which is. Okay, so you know where this story is going. He comes and knocks the rocks out of the way, makes the water muddy. And Jesus says, well, that's the last time you're going to do that. And the boy falls over dead. This was back before there was an emphasis on not bullying people, right? (laughs) Well, the story does not done there because uh, the boy's parents are like, you know, what's up with this? And so they take their dead son to Mary and Joseph and say, straighten your kid out. Look what he did to our son. And they're like, Jesus, how could you do this? And he's like, okay, he's back to life again. And he comes back to life. These are the kind of stories that are going around. One day, Jesus is walking through the village, and there's a guy there who's dyeing some clothes. And uh, Jesus likes blue. Who knew that? <laughs> right? And so he turns everything that the guy's dying turns it blue. And the guy's like, wait, I've got to fill orders for red and green and that kind of stuff. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, I'll take care of that for you. Which one needs to be green? He touched it. It went green, right? So these are stories. These are crazy stories. They are not true. They're dumb. But just like us, right, we believe that what you did and what happened to you as a child totally determines your outcome as an adult, right? We might not believe that God determines things about us, but we really do believe that our childhood determines everything about us and, you know, nothing changes because of the way we're raised, which makes so many of you parents neurotic because you're terrified you're going to ruin your kids, right? Well, we have some parents, some uh, parents in this text that uh, make some mistakes and are fallible, uh, and yet Jesus turned out okay. I think we could all agree on that, right? That he turned out okay? Yeah. So so this story uh, is pretty low-key compared to those kinds of stories. And so it's worth our uh, a time for a minute to figure out, okay, here's a story about Jesus' childhood, and why should I believe it? Why should I pay attention to it? Because, you know, probably over the last few weeks, as you've gathered with family, you've probably told stories, things that you did. Things that you remember. One of our famous Christmas, best Christmas memories at our house is when our kids were little. They're going to die when I tell this because it's it's there. It it was a little terrifying. Um, I was enamored with the idea that we were going to have one year for Christmas, an authentic uh, Charles Dickens Christmas feast like the Cratchits have in A Christmas Carol, a goose, a plum pudding. The whole nine yards. So we got a goose. We cooked the goose. And goose is pretty good. You know, they got geese have so much fat in them that when you bake them, it's like you fry them. So they, they're really crispy. But goose, goose meat's all dark. Every pit, even the breast meat is dark meat, right? But, so it's very rich. 
I like it. No one else in my family likes it. So uh, uh, I would make it, stuff it with apples and uh, sauerkraut. is really good. We don't have it anymore because I can't eat a whole goose by myself. But we wanted to make a memory for the kids. And so then we decided we're going to do a, Chris, a, a Christmas pudding like they did there. Now, when you hear the word pudding, you think of those little cups that you put in your kids' lunch boxes, right, with the little chocolate and the little vanilla stuff in it. Well, an English pudding is like a, a, like a fruitcake, only much heavier, often made with lard, right? And you take it and you put it in a thing and you and, and you boil it for hours and hours and hours. It gets really hot. And then you take it out and then you set it on fire. You take some sort of alcohol, some sort of spirits, you warm them up, you pour it on top of it, and you light it. Well, they did that in the Christmas carol, and they stuck a sprig of holly in it. Well, we had a holly tree outside. I went and got it, went in there, stuck that in there, lit it up. Guess what happened? The holly caught on fire. And so we've got this flame shooting off in the middle of our table this high. That's why everybody remembers it, because it was pretty, 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 pretty memorable, right? Dad, remember when you did that? Yeah, Dad remembers that. That really happened. And there were five of us there who saw it happen. It really happened. As crazy as that sounds, right? Well, how do we know that this happened? And it's important for us to ask that question. How do we know that Jesus did this? On, on what basis does Luke come up with the story? Did, did, did Luke kind of make this up to try to explain something? Is he trying just to make a theological point? And so he reaches out somewhere and creates this story. Well, I'm going to tell you just a little bit. And it's worth our while just to take just a second here as we begin this thing of looking at the life of Jesus and that kind of stuff, that it's important that we're not talking about just stories, but we're talking about things that happened in time and in space. Now, here, here's the reason why I want you to understand that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, sat in the temple days after his parents left the Passover, talking to the religious leaders, is a totally believable story. And I'm going to show you why it's a believable story. Next slide. One of the things that you, you know about Luke is when he writes his gospel, he is concerned with eyewitnesses. In the first chapter, the second verse, he says, just as he's talking to Theophilus, the man that he wrote the gospel for, he says, just as those, the people that were around from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So Luke is telling us at the very beginning that his source material, where he got the stuff that he's writing about, is from eyewitnesses. Okay? Now, who were some of these eyewitnesses? Well, in uh, verse uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 66, when Luke is writing about uh, John the Baptist, it says, And all who heard them, the things that John the Baptist was doing, who heard John the Baptist, who heard Zechariah, who heard Elizabeth, laid them up in their hearts. They remembered them. They thought, this matters. God's at work. I'm, I'm going to remember this. The famous passage, you know, in Luke Two, uh, uh, the, the Christmas passage, the birth of Christ, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then at the end of this chapter, as we read, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Who told Luke about this? His mother. When Paul's in prison several years later uh, uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, Luke accompanies him. 
And I'm pretty sure that Luke talked to these people, and this is where he got his information. His, he knows that Jesus was there in the temple talking to the religious leaders because Mary told him. Luke went to interview her. And this is what he said. When, this is what she said. Tell me about, tell me about Jesus. And this is a, a, a thing that she remembered, that she treasured up in her heart, that she called forth, and that she told him, right? And so, so as we, as we think about this, it, it's important for us to kind of, that, that's why this story makes it into the gospels and the stories about, you know, killing kids on the playground and that kind of stuff doesn't make it into the gospel because this is a genuine eyewitness account of something that happened in time and in space in the life of Jesus Christ. And so as such, it's important for us to, 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 to look at this and to understand this and to read this because Luke has information in this text about Jesus that's worth our knowing and worth our thinking about. Because if Mary remembered it and she thought it was important, we should listen to his mother. We should listen to Jesus' mother and see what this story has to say to us today. So next slide. So a couple of things to note about this, right? The, the text tells us, right, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Every year. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So here's something that we learn about this family right off the bat. If you want to know something about how Jesus was raised, these sentences tell you a lot. And what they tell you is, is that, that Joseph and Mary were faithful, quiet, peaceful believers. And that they loved the law of God. They loved the traditions and the religious uh, 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 festivals. They participated in all of those things out of obedience and love for the God that they were tied to, right? And so it was their custom. They went every year to the Passover. They did the things that, that, that they were supposed to. They were pious keepers of the law. And so one of the, this is important for us and it's important for Luke to, to, to tell us this because rumors were spread about Jesus that Jesus didn't care about the law. That Jesus came to uh, do away with the law. When in fact, he was raised in that tradition, he submitted himself to the law and he obeyed the law, right? And so that's, and he was raised to do that from his, from his earliest days. That's what his family was about. These would be the kind of people that you want in your church, <laughs> right? The quiet kind of faithful folks who before the Lord are doing what God calls them to do. You know, sometimes, and I know why people say this, you know, we, in our culture, we say religion is bad. Faith is good. Well, Jesus thought religion was pretty good. He participated in it fully. Okay. So that, that's worth, uh, that's worth thinking a little bit about. Secondly, what kind of boy was Jesus? Now, you know, we live in a day and age where if your kid rides the bike half a block away from your house to go to the playground, the police are going to come and arrest you for neglect, right? Right? <laughs> right? And that, and that kind of the way things work today, at least it, it seems like that to me, which is, is super unfortunate, frankly, for, for a whole host of reasons. But, one of the things about it is, you know, we ask the question, and people have tried to explain this a, a zillion different ways. How is it? Can you be in this group of people? Now, notice it's it's, it's relatives and and folks from the synagogue, P 
people that they live with, people that they worship with, people that they're related to. One of the things I've learned, you know, from all of our friends who worship with us from Africa, it is unbelievable how many aunties and uncles they have. And they'll identify somebody as auntie so-and-so or uncle so-and-so, and you're like, how are they related to you? Well, they're not in the way we think about it, but they really are because they're friends and longtime friends and they're connected. Right. So Jesus has a whole he's raised in a whole web of relationships like that. So when they leave from Jerusalem to go back to Nazareth, they just assume he's with, you know, Uncle Bob or, you know, whatever. They just think, okay, and Jesus is trustworthy. They trust him. They've had 12 years of raising this boy. And he's generally, as far as they're concerned, he's a trustworthy boy. So they're not concerned about it. He knows it's time to go home. He's making his way home. So at the end of the first day, they start looking around and like, hey, you know, tell Jesus to come, you know, eat supper with us tonight. And they're like, I hadn't seen Jesus. When was the last time you saw him? Well, I saw him back in Jerusalem a day ago. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So... Uh, it says it, it makes it, it, you could read the text one way that it took them three days looking for him. I think they travel out a day. They realize he's not there. They travel back a day. And then on the third day, uh, they find him. And he's right there uh, in the temple. He's not burning anything down. He's he's not getting in any trouble. He's not doing any of the things that many of us would be doing in this kind of situation. Uh, and he's, in fact, demonstrating his love for the law by the fact that he's already studied. We know he's at 12, right? He's about to be, he's about to do his bar mitzvah, right? Uh, uh, that he knows the law and he's able to talk to people about it, right? Now, this is, this is important for us because Jesus is talking to these, these learned people, these religious leaders, asking them questions. They're asking him questions. They're having a conversation. They're having a conversation. So unique. Something we don't do very much, right? They're having a conversation. And in fact, they're having a conversation about spiritual things, about what the scriptures say, about the nature of God, the nature of his love, the nature of his care for us, his his provision. Right. So it is a pretty profound thing that that this 12 year old is able to do that. But there's something yet again for us to understand about this. Jesus is just not making up the stuff that he's talking about. He's given evidence that he has studied. That he grew up like that. that you know, boys uh, uh, like Jesus in the in the first century in the in the Jewish culture memorized a lot of the Bible. Just like you know, I could take one of your kids, bring him up here, and say, "Hey, say Deuteronomy five for us," and they do it right from memory, just like you taught them. Right, right, yeah. Things have changed. So. Um, But again, before we get to kind of draw conclusions about the life of Christ, that he rejected the law or that he overturned the Old Testament, that's what he's talking about. That's that's what he's rooted and grounded in, right? And then we read this really strange thing about the fact that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom and uh, in favor with God and men. So how is it possible that Jesus... The second person of the Trinity, right? You know, the, the Son of God. How is it possible that God can grow? How is it possible that the baby in the manger who needs his diaper changed, who needs to be burped, you know, who, 
who uh, has to be circumcised, who has to do all of these things. How is it that that baby is God? And that's really, it, it, frankly, that's mysterious. And what I, what I mean by that is that it's that it's not, uh, you know, I mean, certainly it's it's worth spending some time wrapping your brain around. But the fact of the matter is the, the, the thing that is so wonderful about that is that in the economy of God and redeeming us, Jesus must be all God and all man. But there are some things about him so that he can relate fully to us. And so that he can be identified fully to us and we can be identified with him. He has the same kind of experiences. He goes to school. He has to learn. He has to grow. He has to do all of those things like we do. Um, and it, it's, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't arrive on the scene glowing in the manger. He doesn't arrive on the scene. He, he comes the same way all of us get here. They, you get born, right? And, and you grow. And you live and you develop and you learn. So in the economy of God, it was required of Jesus, even though he's well studied, that there are things about him that if he were to walk into this room today, there would be nothing about him that's particularly ostentatious or crazy. And think about it for a minute. You know, oftentimes when Jesus does a miracle or he does something outstanding, what does he say to people? Don't tell anybody. Right? He's very understated, very low key, uh, so unlike us in many ways. Right. But the, uh, and, and the scriptures tell us, as we look at this, that though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus doesn't lose any of his divinity, but he does empty himself in the sense that he takes to himself a full human nature. Jesus got sick. He probably had the chicken pox. Like most kids do, right? Well, I guess they get a vaccine for it now and nobody, nobody gets it. But I got scars from where I had the chicken pox. Jesus probably had chicken pox scars, right? He, so he, and, and that's important for us to understand because the things that we go through, the things that we participate in, not only can he sympathize with us about that, that's great, but all of these things he takes on so that he can redeem them for us as well. Right. So all the stages of life, all of those sorts of things, those things you, that you and I experience, he walks through all of those things, um, trusting, obeying, redeeming every one of those things for us. Right. Next slide. Um, one of the things that's important, too, for us to see about this. Now, I do think this is pretty unique. He sought out teachers. He sought out people that he could talk to. Who would help him grow, mature, gain wisdom, right? Um, and the Puritans had a word for this. It's, it, it's, they, they would say that when, what Jesus is doing there in the temple is he is having conference. Not a conference, but conference. He had conference. Uh, and what, what that means is spiritual conversations. Uh, that he's... That what he's talking about and what he's interested in is talking about the work of the Lord, the truth of the scriptures, the grace of God, the gospel, that those are the kinds of things that are on his, his lips. We're going to come back uh, to that in just a minute. Uh, and then we note this last thing about him is that Mary says to him, your father and I have been looking everywhere for you. Uh, how could you do this to us? You know, another reason to believe this story is 
How many times have you ever heard a mother say that to her child? How could you do this to me, right? I believe you've heard that before. Uh, and you, yeah, and maybe some of you have even said it, right? And Jesus takes her words, you're, you know, she says, your father and I, and he says, listen, I am doing what my father has called me to do. So there's a sense here in which what, what Jesus is saying is, even as a 12-year-old, he has a very clear self-understanding that he is uniquely related to God the Father, uh, that he is his only begotten son, and as such, that that identity, that truth about him is what drives him to do and to be uh, uh, the person that he is, right? So, um, and then the, we have this remarkable thing that it says here at the end, right? And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Listen, Jesus submitted to um, sinful people. Jesus submitted to imperfect parents. Isn't that crazy? Now, you know, in our day and age, we, we're willing to submit to perfect parents and perfect people and perfect authorities. Uh, but Jesus submitted to people who were, frankly, often confused about who he was. I mean, at one point later in his life, his mother says to his brothers, go get him because he's lost his mind. But he submitted. That's a pretty profound thing for us uh, uh, to kind of think about and uh, to unpack. So in case you're in case you're not a member of a gym or a workout place, uh, it's New Year's. You know, you would know that if you work out at the gym because suddenly, you know, all the equipment that's readily available to you is no longer readily available because all the slackers who never come to the gym suddenly get religion and decide it's time to come and they get in the way. So it gives you an opportunity to self-righteously judge everybody who's there, right? I've been coming all year. Where you been? Huh? You know, I'm going to smoke you now on this run or whatever so that you, you know, you can have that sense. And you know, we all comfort ourselves by knowing that all the New Year's resolution people will be done before Valentine's Day. Because it never works, right? So New Year's resolutions. Um, what can we learn from this text about New Year's resolutions? Well, here's here's a couple of things. One is, um, let's say you get really convicted and you make a New Year's resolution to to do something, and by Valentine's Day you've failed. And let's say the day after Valentine's, God forbid, you die. You know what you're going to hear? You're going to hear, "Well done, good and faithful servant," if you're in Christ. Okay. Whether you keep your resolution or not, that's great news, right? Because the truth is we're failing to keep our resolutions all the time. I make the same resolution every year, and I fail miserably at it. And that is I want to spend more time outside, and I want to have less idle talk. And it seems like I talk more and more idly, frankly. Um, so what is something that we could do and something that we can learn from this text that might help us? Well, I, I, I would like to see, 
us, ask Jesus to help us be like him in the sense that we would be willing to seek out spiritual conference, spiritual conversations, where we might ask people, you know, what are you repenting of? Where we might ask people, how are we experiencing the goodness and the grace of God? Some of you were here on the Saturday night of our 25th anniversary celebration. That's what we did. In a, in a, in a big sense, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a large room kind of sense where we had people give testimony to what Jesus had done for them, right? Now, how awesome would it be that if more and more of our conversation was about stuff like that? about the work of Christ, about what it means that Jesus died for us, what it means that Jesus loves us, what, what it means how that love of Christ meets us and our struggles and our challenges and that kind of thing. It would be a great thing if those were the kinds of things that were on our lips, the kinds of things that we take time and that we are, that we're kind of proactive about seeking that with one another. And I know it scares the daylights out of you, right? Uh, because you're like, it's so awkward to talk about these things. Well, you know, a little bit of awkward goes a long way. It's good for us to be awkward every now and then, because I find when I'm awkward, I have to trust Jesus, because my normal way of feeling pretty confident and cocky about myself goes out the window, right? Secondly, how awesome would it be for you to talk to somebody about these things who has no idea what you're talking about, right? To say, I want to tell you, friend, that I work with, that I live next to, that I'm related to, something that this Jesus who lived, died, and rose again is done for me. And here, I'm going to give you a way to do it that gets you off the hook. You can say, look, I go to this church, and my pastor is going to ask me if I did this. So this is kind of like homework. And so to save me from the embarrassment of having to say, no, pastor, I ignored what you said, which for some of you, you might be even emboldened to say that. But the, the fact is, you can say this is something we're doing at our church this year is we're trying to have conversations about Jesus. If they're your friend, they're going to be like, OK, I'll help you with that. You know, right? Right? And then you can talk about how terrible the Redskins are or whatever, whatever it is that you normally talk to your friends about. But what a great thing for us to take a year where we are talking about our union with Christ, where it wouldn't just be a religious exercise, but an opportunity to include it in the things that we talk about. Right? Think about that. Hear these words of institution. Uh, of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Let's use this prayer of confession uh, that's printed uh, in our bulletin and up on the screens behind me. It's from um, John Wesley. Forgive them all, O Lord, our sins of omission and our sins of commission, the sins of our youth and the sins of our riper years, 
the sins of our souls and the sins of our bodies, our secret and our more open sins, our sins of ignorance and surprise, and our more deliberate and presumptuous sin, the sins we have done to please ourselves and the sins we have done to please others, the sins we know and remember and the sins we have forgotten, the sins we have striven to hide from others and the sins by which we have made others offend you. Forgive them, O Lord. Forgive them all for his sake, who died for our sins and rose for our justification and now stands at thy right hand to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his followers. When you come forward this morning to take this bread and to drink this cup, you are proclaiming, that you belong to the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. You're proclaiming that in time and in space, Jesus Christ was born, that he lived, that he obeyed, that he walked to this earth, uh, that he died, and that he is alive again. Uh, And that that makes all the difference for you. Uh, That your sin has been forgiven and that you have hope, not just for this life, but for eternity. That's your trust. That's your hope. That's your joy. If that is describes you even uh, as weak and as feeble as your grasp may be on that, and you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, he wants you today to come to be renewed, uh, to be restored, to be strengthened, and to be reminded again of this great thing that Jesus actually lived And breathe the same air that you and I breathe, uh, that he died for us, and that he rose again. And that changes everything about our lives. Um, Earlier uh, in the service, we saw uh, Libby Campbell come down front and uh, profess uh, uh, her faith and identify herself with Jesus and with um, uh, his body here. So as the elders and deacons come down front uh, this morning to assist me in communion, um, Libby and her family uh, will uh, lead us uh, in uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. Let me remind you that the bread is gluten-free, the outer ring is wine, uh, the inner rings are grape juice. <laughs> 